All right, so we're going through the creed. And this has been kind of fun talking to you guys about uh, how this is landing with you. You know, because for some of you, you're like really excited about this. Others of you are a little traumatized by it because you've got some, you know, it's kind of a reminder of the old, you know, religion maybe that some of you came out of. Some of it is a, like a great foundation. I love that. We need to get back to that. Uh, it was hilarious in the, in the foyer last week. One guy, he was telling me, he goes, man, I haven't quoted the creed since I was an unbeliever. Which is hilarious, right? Because the irony of saying, you know, I believe in God the Father. It's like you're, you're basically affirming all the things you don't believe, right? By just standing up and mumbling the words. And it's hilarious. Like, it's like we were talking about things you used to do when you're an unbeliever. You know, drugs, sex, rock and roll. He's like, oh, yeah, when I used to do the creed back in the days before Christ, you know. Uh, so that was kind of funny. Um, others ha- have shared pretty negative associations that they have with the creed. And one of the questions that comes up is, why not just study the Bible? Like, why would you study a, a man-made creed? That's, I don't know if I see that in the Bible. It's not like we're studying the Psalms or something, like they, these inspired words. So why would we do this? Jeff did a great job explaining why last week he did a whole sermon on it. But let me give you a quick word on this, just, just to kind of review the, the why we're doing this. Just a few quick reasons that I was thinking about. Number one uh, is our stewardship here is to preach the word. And if we stop doing that at some point, somebody just please shut the doors to our church, right? Like if we're not preaching the word, we see this, uh, Paul telling Timothy, preach the word in the presence of God. I give you this charge, preach the word. So that begs the question, why then preach the Apostles' Creed? Well, uh, in, here's, here's an example. Paul in Acts 20 was talking to the leaders of the Ephesian church, the elders. And in defending his ministry in Acts 20, he says, I declare to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. Why? Why was he innocent of their blood? Because, he says, I did not avoid declaring to you the whole plan of God. He's like, I told you the whole thing, Genesis to Revelation. Revelation wasn't written yet. But he's like, I'm telling you the whole redemption story. And that's why I'm not guilty. That is the task that we have, those of us whose job is is preaching the word, is is to declare it in its fullness. Now, here's, here's the thing. This, we live in a transient community, right? About every four years, our church is almost a completely different church. Uh, just leave and come back and you'll, you'll find that out. You'll see a few familiar faces. But being in a college town, this, this kind of turnover, like we're living in an airport terminal. Well, here's the thing. Over the last four years, I was looking back on all the books that, that we've studied. Can any of you name all the books that we've studied in the last four years if you're a senior? No, you probably can't because I couldn't and I preached them, right? Uh, those are very impactful sermons. Uh, but anyway, uh, I didn't remember which one. So uh, here it is. Hebrews, we did that. just came out of Hebrews. And then last year was 1 Corinthians. Some of you guys remember 1 Corinthians? We did something on Titus. Uh, Matthew, we preached through that um, four years ago. We did a few Psalms, Proverbs, Old Testament prophecies. So out of the 66 books of the Bible, we covered four of them. Now you could argue if the stewardship is to declare the whole plan of God, 
maybe sometimes going just slowly through a book could, could maybe not be the best way to do that, right? Sometimes you need to zoom out and see the scope of Scripture in its entirety. We think that the Apostles' Creed is a way to zoom out and see the counsel of God, see, fill in the gaps. What are the, the basic things that we believe? And go back to the Word and talk about those things, right? So that's one of the reasons. Number two, I think that the Apostles' Creed and going through this is a corrective to a cultural trend that we have of elevating emotion over truth, Feelings over doctrine. And so some of us can even be tempted to think, well, I know that I'm a Christian because every week I come and get really excited about church. Every week I come and it's like I get really good feelings. Like when we sing that song, there's that line, and on the third, break it, you know, we're singing that. Man, I really feel that. Like I get good feelings when I'm in church. Here's the thing, what makes us Christian, what makes us a Christian is not the feelings of excitement we get about religious things. There's a lot of people that get those same kind of religious feelings. It's our confession, the confession that no matter what language we speak, no matter what culture we're from, no matter what era of history, we stand on this rock of timeless truth that it, you could say a great time to say the Apostles' Creed is when you're not feeling it because it's a reminder of the rock on which you stand. And so that's why we think that going through the study of talking about the creed is important to remind us of the doctrine and the truth that we stand on. And the third reason is we, we've said this, Jeff said it last week, and this is kind of a, a metaphor that we use a lot, an analogy that we use a lot. We say we need to get on the same page. We need to get on the same page. And that is actually a great picture. It's, it's probably way overused, uh, but I think it's actually a good picture of getting on the same page. And I'm going to illustrate this. Okay, have any of you guys read this book? I don't know. Uh, Jeff is gone this week. Uh, and so it's a great time to, to kind of make fun of him a little bit. But uh, he wrote a book, which is usually not, it's like, yeah, how can you make fun of someone who's read, written a book? Um, I don't know why it's funny. It's just, it's kind of cool, actually. Uh, it is a really good book. Gospel 101, believe it or not. It's amazing. Um, sorry, some of you are uncomfortable. Um, sorry, Jeff. He's probably watching this in Colorado. Uh, this is a great book that he wrote to get everyone on the same page about the gospel. From Genesis to Revelation, what is, what is it? It's a very simple study. If uh, We have it at the Resource Center. You should really check this out. It'd be a good one to do by yourself or with a few other people. But here's the thing, um, if you try to go through this book on different pages, he's like, the point is to get everyone on the same page, so we, we go through this together. But let's try to go through this book on different pages. Should we try that? Just to look, what, what, is, what does the world look like when we're on different pages? And so here's what we're going to do. Can we get the text up here? We're going to break this into different sections. We're going to go through Jeff's book 
on different pages. Let's get on a different page. Who wants to be on the same page? Uh, so this, these two sections over here, you guys are starting on page 106, okay? And that's session eight. Can you guys, can you see that over there? Olivia, can you read that? Okay, sweet. You guys, uh, you guys are on page 106, session eight. So when we arrive, and just, I'm gonna cue you up when you start, when it's your turn to start. But you guys, you don't wanna be on that page. You're on a different page. So you're on page 21. So you're going to start with, if you're reading a story, that thing. And I'll, I'll cue you up when it's your turn. You're going to read in unison, okay? Um, and then uh, this group over here is on page one, okay? Page one, this is the introduction. Uh, so you'll start at, I watched in dismay. And I'll come over and, and cue you up. I'm just kind of a conductor of chaos this morning. Um, so... Are you guys ready for this? Because when I point to your section, you guys will start reading, and you need to know what to read. Okay, um, this section, you guys ready? Uh, let's, let's go through Gospel 101 together. Let's get all on the different pages. All right, let's start. Ready? When we arrive at the last scene in the book of Revelation. Okay, you guys don't want to be on that page. So we're on page 21. Ready? Two, three. If you are reading a story, it's hard to make sense of it unless you... You guys don't want to be on that. You guys are page one. Let's start at the beginning. Ready, set, go. I watched in dismay as a friend attempted to explain his... Just louder. Come on, you guys. Louder. Come on. We don't like that page. You guys... We got to stop. We got to, it's, okay, okay, we're done, we're done. Wasn't that an awesome book? I mean, let's give it up for Jeff Dodge for writing this great book. Um, all right, church, you just saw what it looks like when a group of people are on different pages. We are working through the Apostles' Creed because doctrine unifies us. And this morning, here's the thing that we have to be on the same page about. Like, this is the one thing that a religion has to get right. If you're wrong about this, who cares what else you're right about? It doesn't matter. And it's the question, who is God? Who is God? Let's get on the same page together. And in the creed, it says, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. Number one, if you're taking notes, who is God? God is our Father. God is our Father. Remember Luke chapter 11. This is Jesus. He says uh, in Luke 11 that Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. He said to them, whenever you pray, say, Father, your name be honored as holy. Can we just stop right here? Jesus when he's teaching his disciples how they're saying, how are we supposed to interact with God? You know, should we think of him as like a husband or a really close friend or 
Should we just kind of say whatever we want? Jesus says, here's how I want you to relate to God. First thing out of your mouth should be Father. But what does that mean? What is a father? If we go back to one of the first times that in the Bible that it talks about God as a father, it, it comes in the, in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 1. Uh, it, it's, it says, and you've heard us say this before, where it talks about God carrying us as a father carries a son. And then in one of Jesus' favorite passages in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy is one of the most quoted books in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 8, he says this, and I'll, I'll read this in a second, but he, here's some context for Deuteronomy, where we are in, in redemptive history here. So the Israelites had just come out of slavery in Egypt, and then they spent 40 years in the wilderness, in the desert. This is God giving them the law. He gave them the law and then he's about to, Moses is kind of saying some last words before they step into the promised land. And so he's kind of reviewing the last 40 years. And in Deuteronomy 8, 5 through 10, he says this. Keep in mind that the Lord your God has been disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. He's saying, that's what the last 40 years have been. God has been interacting with you as his children. And it's been hard, right? There's been some hunger. There's been some thirst. There's been some manna. There's been some water from the rock. Why all of this? It's because God has been treating you like children and teaching you. He's been disciplining you as his son. Verse 6. So, so keep the commands of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with streams, springs, deep water sources, flowing with valleys and hills, a land of wheat, barley, vines, figs, pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you will eat food without shortage, where you will lack nothing, a land whose rocks are iron and from whose hills you will mine copper. When you eat and are full, you will bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. God says, hey, we got we to gotta Israel, we got to define our relationship. I'm your father. I'm your father. And in this text, I think we see a, a couple things about what the fatherhood of God looks like in the lives of his people, two things that I think we see here is number one, authority. God as father means that he's an authority in our lives. Look at verse five. He says, the Lord your God has been di disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Discipline, that process of teaching, training, instruction. He's growing us and God knows how to raise children. He uses discipline to do this. Any good father does this. Gets your attention through discipline to teach you good from evil, right from wrong. 
safe from unsafe, courage from cowardice, right? You're, you're teaching your children this role. And it says that he is Father Almighty. Well, think about that word Almighty. Almighty. He's sovereign. He has all might, all power, all authority. And that's one advantage he has over us as human parents is we as parents, we often come to these crossroads in parenting where we don't know what to do, but God always knows what to do. He always knows what is good for us. But it's not just authority here in Deuteronomy. It's also the fatherhood of God is, is care. That's the second thing about the fatherhood of God, not just authority, it's care. Look at verse 7. He says, the Lord your God is bringing you to a good land. He describes it streams, springs, wheat, barley, vines, figs, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey. You will eat food without shortage. One of the most fundamental things you need to know about God is that he is good and he can be trusted. One of the saddest things this week was talking to a, a couple different people in our church who were really struggling with the creed because for them, there's some pretty traumatic emotions associated with saying these words. One, one person was talking about um, their father was abusive verbally and physically to their mom and to the children. But where it gets complicated is their father was also the pastor of their church. One moment screaming at home. And just a few minutes later, standing up, leading the congregation in the creed. One person shared their story of their unbelieving dad getting up and leading the church in the creed. And them sitting in the pew just like trying to hurt themselves because they were so angry at the hypocrisy. Which is so sad because that could not be any further from the truth about God our Father. And when we see how Jesus, what Jesus teaches us the Father is like, because he says in Luke 11, here's how I want you to interact with God as your Father. But in Luke 15, he tells us what the Father is like. And this is one of the most beautiful descriptions about our Father. It's the famous story of the prodigal son. And the son wastes his whole inheritance makes a complete mess of his life. And after getting so desperate, he comes home and here's where we learn about what God is like. What does the father do? How does the father respond to the son who just wasted all of his possessions? Here it is in Luke 15, verse 20. I just want to read a segment of the story. So, so the father got up. He's, 
Uh, so the son, the son gets up, went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. You just squandered everything, like your father's possessions, your inheritance. And how does the father respond? He cranks up the music. I mean, celebrate good times. You would think this is like the best wedding reception, the biggest party, get the fattened calf, kill it. Let's crank the music. Our son has come home. That is what our Father in heaven is like. That's what we call grace. He is a God of mercy and grace. He's the kind of God that just last night, you could have squandered everything. And this morning you show up and God is like, I brought you here because I want to bring you to the table. I want you to understand how much grace I have for you. God is way more generous than any human father. And this is where the Apostles' Creed gets so practical. I was thinking about this for me does my parenting reflect God the Father to my children? I mean, if you want instant guilt for any dad, just ask that question. We'll be running to the table, right? Because we all feel our failure as a dad. We feel it. We get it, right? We know what's at stake. We know that, you know, our spouse, our wife, our kids are looking to us to reflect God, and we see our failure. And we do have this place of authority in the home. How are we using it? Is it passivity? Is it using our authority to be working 24-7? Is it using our authority to control the channels or to be away at the golf course? Spending our time and money just, just like while our kids are just doing their own thing, checked out with our wife. One of my friends uh, is a great example of this. Um, and getting home early to help with kids, to spend time with kids, sitting with a kid, reading to them helping get food ready, getting kids to, to their activities. 
And then discipline, being purposeful to, to teach our kids. These, these are the kinds of things that, that God does for us. So I think one practical thing is for sure for, for fathers to, to ask that question, are we, do we reflect the authority, the discipline, and the care of God the Father? Are we quick to give grace? Are we, are we patient? Are we long-suffering? Or are we quick to anger and domineering? That that is not what God is like. Does our parenting reflect the care of God? Do, do you, as a, as a father, have a habit of, of hugging your children, of speaking to them? We see at the baptism of Jesus, remember, what the father says, this is my son whom I love. That's one of the times we hear the voices of God, right? Like, what was that sound? It was, was that thunder? No, it was God speaking, saying, this is my son whom I love. Do your children know from your lips that there is nothing they can do that will make you love them more through performance, through grades, through sports, through being amazing, and there's nothing they can do that will make you love them less. You just love them, and there's nothing they can do about it. Do your kids know that? Do you, do you hug them? Do you speak those words over them into their ears? That's what God does for us. He's reminding us constantly, I love you. He's affirming his love, when you think about the role of the Holy Spirit, we'll talk about in a few weeks, is in Romans 8, the, the Spirit testifies to our spirit that we are, the, we are children. Like that's what the Father does, is he reminds us through the Holy Spirit, you are a child, you are loved. Now at this point, all of us have asked at some point in our lives, why? Why God? If God is so all-powerful, and so all-caring, then why was I born with this fill-in-the-blank disability? Why was I born into these circumstances? Why was I given this dad or this husband or this trauma, or whatever your question might be. Why, why, why? I don't know the answer to all those questions. But I have a question for you in, in those times, and this is for me too. Like, a great thing to do is to ask questions to your questions. Here's a great question to ask when you're in those kind of why rabbit holes. Do I trust that God is good and that he has everything under control? Do I trust God? It's a good thing to think about something in your life or in our world that seems out of control or unfair or unjust and to speak these words to that question 
Just say, God, I trust you with this. God, I trust you. Oswald Chambers, uh, I got this from my friend Dan Van Oss. He plays keys sometimes. He, he, sends, he sends me some good stuff, and he sent me this yesterday. It is up in this Oswald Chambers, this devotional, My Utmost for His Highest. He says, the spiritual life is the life of a child. We are not uncertain of God, just uncertain of what he's going to do next. If our certainty is only in our beliefs, in our ideas about the world and how we think the way the world is, we develop a sense of self-righteousness, become overly critical, and are limited by the view that our beliefs are complete and settled. But when we have the right relationship with God, life is full of spontaneous, joyful uncertainty and expectancy. I love how it says that when you're living with God as your father, there's a sense of joyful uncertainty and expectancy. Like you're leaning into the future with this knowledge that God is good and he's got this. So when we say the creed, I believe in God, the father almighty, that's what we're declaring. Joyful expectancy because God, he's got this. The second part of the creed is, and quickly, this really should be like a three-week series, this alone, this part of the creed, but it says maker of heaven and earth. The second thing you need to know about God is that God is our creator. It says maker of heaven and earth. Um, in Colossians 1, it says it, he made heaven so he made all things visible, invisible. We're going to skip Colossians 1 and, and go on to or Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, everything seen and unseen. And in verse 27, it says, so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them, said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. This verse alone, Genesis 1.27, if you highlight this verse, this verse alone, you could argue, contains almost the whole Christian worldview. This verse will save you from a thousand errors. Number one, God created everything seen and unseen. The universe was created out of nothing. It was designed. When we study science, we're essentially just tracing out the genius of God and, and the faithfulness of God to sustain the laws of physics. Secondly, it says God created us in his image. Every human has infinite worth. When we see a human being, we should look at any human that we see and we should be in awe, minds blown at how beautiful and amazing that person is. The most boring and uninteresting person you have ever met is a beautiful creation of God. And do you approach other humans with this sense of mind-blown awe over what God has made and how they reflect the image of God? This gets 
real practical when we think about, we talk about the sanctity of life, the set-apartness of life, the infinite worth of every human. We're not just machines or clumps of cells, flesh and bone. We have a soul. When you took your dog on a walk this morning, you could start singing. And your dog just like looks at you like, what are you doing, right? Because you were made to worship. Your dog is just flesh and bones, right? Bones, right? Bones, whatever that is, uh, new word. And, and you were made to worship. This is why when we see racism, prejudice, favoritism in our world, we can say, we as Christians can speak prophetically about racism and say, it's not just bad. It's not just that we don't like it. It's evil. It's satanic to look at and elevate a race over another race or to just put people in those boxes of those racial boxes. We were made in the image of God. Every person is beautiful, wonderfully made in the image of God. That's why teenagers, when you see someone at school, other kids are making fun of them. and you join in, that's pretty evil because that person that's being made fun of is, is a person that reflects God. They have a soul and they are beautiful and you are mocking. Never join in with making fun of another person. When we see someone that, that, that is in need, that this just has so many applications of, of human life. It's so precious. And we as Christians can speak like this because we believe that, that we were made in the image of God. And then finally, God created us male and female. So reality is fixed. Male or female, just like I can't change gravity, I can never change the fact that I'm a man. And I don't have to prove my manhood. I just am a man. That's how God made me. But at this point, we're not going to preach at all the people out there. We want to look at ourselves and say, maybe this means of us, we need to start exploring what does God say about manhood and, and womanhood and begin to see how God designed us and live into the freedom of how God made us. And last week, Jeff talked about how there's freedom in the fences that God has made for us. And, you know, the picture of the kids on the playground and when the fences were gone, they just clumped to the center because they were so terrified by all this stuff out there. Well, I think what God has done is as Christians, we are not fenced in from the world. I think that we are not fenced in. I think that we are fenced out. Like the whole world is ours. God just puts fences around really dangerous things that will hurt us, right? Remember, the Garden of Eden, everything, it's good. Just, the, hey, that one tree, stay away from that tree, it's fenced off. And it's Adam and Eve, like, climbing over the tree and just, like, eating the fruit, right? 
That's kind of the world we live in. God has made us for freedom to enjoy the goodness of his creation. And we as Christians, more than anyone on planet Earth, should enjoy the gift that God has given us. But there are things that have been fenced off for our good and for his glory. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And as we close, I think about Jesus and how he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So if you want to know what God is like, what the Father is like, don't, don't just look to your dad. I, I think it's great. If you have a father that reflected God, that's awesome. But, but you don't have to have that to know God as Father. What you have to have is Jesus. What you have to see is Jesus. Because if you've seen Jesus, you've seen what the Father is like. And Jesus, just this morning, I read this in Luke 22. I'm going through the same Bible reading plan as Jeff and his guys. So Mick, if you're out there, you probably, Mick and John, you guys probably read this too. And Luke 22:42, right before the cross, Jesus is in the garden and he says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. We see Jesus before the cross, entrusting himself to the authority of his father and the care of God, believing that whatever the father had was gonna be the best for us. And thank the Lord that Jesus believed in the infinite goodness and sovereign control of his father because we get to share in communion because of it. What are you going through this morning? What are the questions you have for God? I don't have all the answers. I don't know if I have any answers, except just know what God is like. He loved you so much that he sent his one and only son. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your love for us, displayed on the cross. Help us to overcome our doubts and to, as we come to the table, to know you, Father. To know you. That's what we want. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.